today is our last class in how to study a Bible, so I'm going to try and bring it home with some conclusions and some application. Uh, but before we do that, I'd like to kind of do a little bit of a review, and this is going to be very much um, an audience participation part. I'd like us to go over the previous lessons to see if we can in somehow um, encapsulate everything we've learned to one loose method of studying the Bible. There are, there are methods out there that you can follow, um, and we've hit a lot of the high points of how to study a Bible, but I uh, wanted to kind of make it cohesive um, as we go through the first part of our lesson today. Um, so, you know, just a reminder that, that this, this class is really for those who are interested in learning how to study a Bible in a little bit more depth than just reading it and get some of those uh, skill sets in place and some knowledge about those skill sets in place and some of the tools of how we study um, put together. Not just so that we can gain our head knowledge, but also uh, our understanding and wisdom of the Lord and his word and then how to put it into practice. And so today we'll, we'll do some more of that, um, particularly thinking about how we should think about the conclusions we come to in our study to see and how to vet to see if they're good interpretations of Scripture together, and then also uh, how we should apply it. Now, you may be thinking, you know, application may be the most important step of studying a Bible, but it also comes at the end of these classes. Can anyone tell me why you think that I've left application to the end? Why is that the last step in the process of studying your Bible? Why is application the last step? Right, exactly. To rightly apply, you have to rightly understand. At some point, do you remember we talked about orthodoxy and orthopraxy? You have to know what's right before you can do what's right. And Scripture is the truth to be applied, so we must know it first. First of all, let's remind ourselves why we study the Bible in the first place. One reason is, it is because it is the mark of a child of God. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best, or another translation says, Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So a child of God is one that spends time in Scripture. Why else do we study our Bible? Because it is God revealing himself to us. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in the famous passage where Jesus teaches his disciples about uh, himself in the Old Testament, Luke 24:44 says, And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So everything in the whole scripture teaches us about Jesus, who is the word. Also, another reason that we study scripture, because it, is, it does show us the path. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So there's just 
three reasons why we study the Bible. Can someone shout out some more? Maybe some personal ones, why you personally study the Bible, or perhaps why one should study the Bible. We live in a world where the word gets twisted, yes. And truth gets twisted. Yes. Excellent. Our sanctification comes through increasing knowledge of the word and application. Here's another couple. It has the power to accomplish God's will. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word... So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So it has its own power to accomplish God's will. How about this one? It's the ultimate biblical counseling tool. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Any others? Anyone thought of any other reasons why they particularly study the Bible? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We are supposed to know it so we can pass it on to future generations. Yeah. Deuteronomy 6. And we're supposed to live it out. And how can we live it out unless we know it? Yeah. Good. Okay, so there's many reasons uh, why we should not just read the word, but study it deeply. Just think, we've got an entire lifetime with the revealed word of God. Why would we not take time to study it and get familiar with it? And it speaks to every aspect of life. Two, sufficient to do that. So why would we not? All right, so I said at the beginning we're going to have a little bit of a quiz time. We're going to go through an overview of previous lessons. And how we're going to work this is I'm going to say the lesson title. And I'd like people to shout out perhaps some of the things that you learned from that lesson, if you can remember. Don't worry, I've got plants in the audience (laughs) that can help with this. Okay, so first session, uh, the uh, second session was how we prepare, taught by Andrew Nunn very well. What did we learn about how we prepare ourselves before approaching Scripture in study? Anybody remember? Prayer. Thank you. Good. Some things we can remember in prayer is thanking God for His Word. Laying down our own agendas, our own presuppositions, and being ready and willing to learn. What else can we do to prepare ourselves to study? Don't forget the what? The rebounding? Oh, that's right, yeah. LeBron James. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) I also thought Andrew did a great job at the end there talking about reading and observation. So reading thoughtfully, uh, making initial observations of the text, sort of reading 2.0, 
some of that inductive uh, review of Scripture. And of course, heart preparation is the other thing he covered, talking about our dependency and our humility, as well as our readiness for action. Then we moved on to a lesson on context. What types of context did we cover? Do you remember? Historical context. Good. Yeah, what's going on in the time frame that the scripture is written? Any others? Biblical, Biblical yes. Um, that's um, that's uh, kind of looking at the place of the passage with the surrounding um, verses and passages. Where does it sit in the book, in the chapter, etc., etc.? And what references does it make to other parts of Scripture? Any others? Cultural. Yeah, what references is the author using to get his point across? What are the cultural distinctives that could be a barrier to our understanding? Okay, and then we looked at genres as well. Um, What type of literature passages? So what tools could we use there? Think about from last week's lesson, we could use a Bible handbook, maybe a book introduction, Bible dictionaries, customs and manners books, and and commentaries as well to help us find context. Then we moved into a lesson on authorial intent. Anything from that lesson you remember? Goodness me. Really, it's 9.20. Trying to get me to think about several weeks ago. Might have even been last year. Yep, that's a good one. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. To seek to find out what it meant for the people there during that time and what the author himself was trying to get across, maybe what problem he was trying to solve, or if you want to put it that way. We're looking for that. Another word for that is intent. We're looking for the intent of the author. You can look at simple intent. You know, sometimes he just tells you, hey, this is why I'm writing. Other times it's more implicit. We went through the four questions. Who is writing to who? What is the situation of the author and reader? Are there any problems or issues that need to be addressed? Are there any repeated themes or a single idea holding it all together? Um, we looked at structure. Parallels, some of those enhance the understanding. Linking words, what's the therefore, therefore? And then finally, biblical theology, how the whole thing fits together, the meta-narrative. Looking at it from the perspective of the ultimate author, which is God himself. And we can look at commentaries and books on biblical theology to help with that. Then we looked at original languages. Can someone tell me the three original languages? I know this is kind of a basic question. Sorry about that. Yeah. Very good. But, hey, let me ask you this, though. 
when uh, we walked through that lesson, was there anything that impacted you about the importance of looking at the Greek word and how it adds to your understanding? Yes. Yeah, excellent. I'm going to give another example of that. Right. There could be multiple original language, language words for one English word. It happens a lot. Um, and I'll, sh I'll give you another example of that today, actually. Um, when we talk about conclusions. All right. And then finally, tools of study. We can have physical tools like books. You can buy yourself a massive library. Or you can use digital tools like Logos or, what was it, something Arc? Bible Arc. Hey, how about that Bible Arc? Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, a good one. Yeah, it's clever. How did they come up with that name? <clears throat> okay, so now we'll go into today's lesson. Thank you for uh, bearing with me and refreshing our memory on, on what we've been through. Um, and we're going to go into some, you know, I'm going to put this pen over here. I keep fiddling with it. There we are. <laughs> Probably distracting to some people. All right, let's go over some practical tips on how to study your Bible. Using all these things, what does that now look, to, look like in reality? Um, so my hope in going back through these lessons and getting you to repeat that back to me was to put everything together so you have a cohesive picture of what a Bible study session may look like in reality. Looking at all those elements, does that seem like a daunting task to you? It does make, to me, a lot more sense now, Paul's exhortation to Timothy to make this a task of diligence. Does it not? In an era of quick and easy, Bible study takes time and discipline. But how much time should it actually take? I have a friend uh, at work, and every time you ask him a question, every time, without fail, the answer is, well, it depends. Anyway, enough, enough about my work situation. But the answer in this case, how long it should it take you to study the Bible, is it depends on the situation. There are multiple reasons why we might embark on Bible study. Maybe something of particular interest strikes you during your morning reading, your devotional reading, and you want to dig, it, dig into it some more. Perhaps a specific word catches your attention. Uh, a word study... Like that might only take you about 30 minutes as you dig into those uh, dictionaries and um, cross-references. Perhaps you're leading a small group Bible study and you want to do a faithful job of leading the group. Well, this might take you between two to four hours. Try and work out the main theme of the passage. Jot down some notes so that you can lead well. And then think of some good questions to ask the group. Um, uh, just a little tip there, sometimes you are going through like a Bible study guide, maybe um, like a little booklet that has questions. Don't just, sometimes it's easy for you to just follow that guide, read the material and ask the questions, but really think about that guide. Really think about those questions. Because sometimes, especially if you know who you're leading that study with, you kind of know some of the things that are going on in their life, and maybe you can think of some questions that are even more specific or pertinent. Don't just go through it um, 
without thinking and praying about it first. Perhaps you're a leader of your household and you want to teach scripture to your family. Um, right now, um, I've asked Erica. She's actually in the audience today. Um, <laughs> I've asked her to lead us, our family through a study of Joel, and she's using the coma method of study. Um, and it's, she says it takes about an hour a week to get ready for that. So, um, just a little guide there. Hmm? Coma method. Um, ask me afterwards. Huh? Contacts, observation, meaning, and application. Yeah, it's not that it sends you into, the, into a coma because it's so boring. It's not that at all. It's very interesting. Uh, how about this, though? On the other end of the scale, what if you're studying for an expositionary sermon? It could happen to some of us. Some of us have preached before. Um, or taught at maybe Women's Institute or something like that. Uh, in one church that I went to, it was literally written into the contract of the lead pastor that he had to spend 16 hours a week in sermon preparation. That's how seriously our congregation wanted him to take preparing for the sermon and doing his exegesis. So, as I said, it depends. It depends on the situation, what you're studying for, why you're studying. Any other thoughts on how long it might take you to study the Bible for yourself? Any pushback on that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In a row. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I mean, like for this lesson, I I couldn't do it all in one. I mean, probably total took took six hours, but probably two hours, two hours, two hours, something like that. <clears throat> what about how often? How how often should we study our Bible? I say regularly. Is that helpful? <laughs> but perhaps you have some structures that in your life that aid with this. You're part of a regular study uh, with fellow church members. Um, maybe you prep actively uh, for active listening for the week's sermon. Maybe you go to an equipping class that walks through a book of the Bible. In some ways, these are all studying the Bible. Um, and they are obviously good ways to get familiar with Scripture. But I also recommend regular personal Bible study, not just doing study in groups like that. Just opening up the word, pick a passage, and spend some time to understand it more fully. Um, I would say, and I don't know if I would do this without the discipline of having to teach regularly, but I would say like once a month is probably a good regular time slot for studying the Bible in a more lengthy way, more deep way. Um, I would also, a healthy Christian would study the Bible on the instance of having a problem or an idea or a question that you want to address. This happens all the time in life. Maybe you have a theological question, an ecclesiological question. Maybe you have a problem in your life. 
Maybe you're mad at the church or your church elders. Maybe you're stuck in your parenting. Maybe you're tempted by the world in some area of your life, etc., etc., etc. Myriad situations, which obviously the Bible has something to say about. We should go there first. First in prayer, and then immediately to the scripture for answers. It is sufficient to do that. Do not go first to some popular self-help book or an online article or your friend even, perhaps. How about we, f- we first go to Scripture in these situations? Don't, we don't always need to just read what somebody else has said in the past about this because the, your situation may be fairly unique and you're certainly seeing it uh, in your own life for maybe the first time. So it's good to find out Uh, from scripture it's the original source of all wisdom it is the revealed word of god spend some time first studying what the bible has to say about it be willing to submit your heart to the word of god remember 2 timothy 3 16 all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work so first i say go to scripture and then after that definitely go to other sources as well Um, all right any other thoughts on how often we should study our bible maybe we should look real quick at the other side of that question what if we're not studying our bible at all think about what that says Jacob was just saying that meditation on Scripture as a result of memorizing Scripture can also be helpful. Keeping on our mind, meditate day and night, right? <clears throat> All right. So that is the answer to how often and how long we should study. But now we're going to get into... Okay, something called the hermeneutical spiral, and I think I've mentioned this in other lessons, but I know that when you first start, you're first starting out studying Scripture, um, I would give some advice. Don't be discouraged if it's hard or not easy at first. Um, scripture is clear on this. It says that Increasing knowledge of the word is a gradual process. Think about Hebrews um, 5.11 and onwards. It says, About this we have much to say, as it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. 
But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, this one is a little bit of a, a rebuke because the people should have moved on to another level of maturity. But implied in there is there is a stage in the Christian life when you are a child in maturity and you do need milk. And that's okay. You know, some of us are at that stage. And it takes us a while to get used to and ready for meat. That's just the process of sanctification and maturity. So we assume there's that period where we need the milk of the word. We're unskilled in the word of righteousness. So there will naturally be a transitional period from milk to meat, from immaturity to maturity. But how does that transition occur? It says, by being trained by constant practice. Constant practice. All right? That goes back to the timing. How regularly should we study scripture? Constant practice. That's how regularly. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The question is, by testing against what do we become more discerning? Obviously the answer is Scripture. Right? It is objective truth from our almighty God, all-knowing God. For most, this life is long from our perspective. It's full of moments in which the wisdom of Scripture needs to be applied. A continual study of the Bible joined with experiencing its application over time is called the hermeneutical spiral. As you go back over the word again and again, you will understand more and more you will learn to trust it more and more. And sort of a, from a personal testimony, I know and I have learned that, that this is true. I can give you testimony that studying scripture, uh, living and watching it being lived out, has encouraged my faith immeasurably. Um, God's word is true and it never, ever will let you down. So I desperately thank God for his wisdom and that he has given me his word to guide me in this life. I'd be lost without it. And so will you be if you don't keep it in front of you day and night. All right. So that's my encouragement. Begin that path, begin that journey on that path if you have not already done so, studying your scripture regularly. Okay. Let's move on to the subject of interpretive reasoning. So let's assume that you've done your study and you're taking notes as you go and you may have come to a conclusion. You've written something down um, about this passage that you're studying or a word study or a subject. Uh, You've done all your study. You've gone through all the books, done all your word studies, etc., etc. And you have some sort of body of work, either written down or a concept or an idea in your mind. How should you think about your interpretation? 
how do we know that our interpretation is right? Correct. Because, you know, might not be. First encouragement I have to say is have confidence. We've obviously spent this entire course encouraging you to study and interpret the Bible for yourself. Clearly, the Bible commands us to study it. And if we ask God for wisdom, he will grant it to us generously. Clearly, the Bible is truth. We can rely on it as the word of God. Here's what Jesus himself says in John 8. He says that if we continue in his word, then we are his disciples indeed. And we shall, we shall know the truth. And the truth shall make us free. So there's no doubt that biblical interpretation is a fruitful exercise. Have confidence that if you're being honest with yourself and before God with the text, that the Holy Spirit will guide you to a correct interpretation and application, and that it will bear fruit in your life and others' lives. So there's an element as a child of God that you can have confidence that this is the right thing, and you will come to the truth, an understanding of the truth, as you go through your study. Um, so that's one side, having confidence. We can be overconfident, though, can't we? Especially in our own opinion. So humility is the next thing we need to remember. We must assess the end result of our biblical interpretation with humility. The Bible is the word of God and he is all-knowing, whereas we are human and have a fallen and finite mind. Proverbs 32-6 says it like this, Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor knowledge of the Holy One, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So we should never attempt to try and make Scripture mean something that it doesn't. Great and grave errors can and have been made by interpreters trying to place too much emphasis where the Bible does not, or not emphasizing, emphasizing enough that which the Bible clearly states. Watch for that imbalance. The ultimate warning here is Revelation 22, 18 and 19. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Remember that much interpretive work has been done in the past by gifted people on that very passage that you are studying right now. For thousands of years, many learned theologians, teachers, and fellow Christians have done much work to interpret the Bible too. Draw upon their wisdom and knowledge to supplement and increase your own. And as Andrew reminded us during one of his teachings, our task is not to seek to be clever or to find a new interpretation, 
but to understand orthodox interpretations better. That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, I'm talking to myself here. There was a time I was like, oh, I can be the cleverest man in the room. I can find some unique niche interpretation. And then everyone will look at me and say, man, he's smart. And that is not the attitude whatsoever that you should have in studying Scripture. Humble to learn. All right. Uh, Also what helps with interpretive reason is studying in community. Uh, I think throughout this class, both Jacob and Andrew have encouraged us uh, about the importance of sharing the results of study in community. And this falls right in line with the model of the New Testament. There's a very interesting passage in Acts 27 to 11. We're going to read. It's most famous for uh, Eutychus falling asleep in the window, falling out, and uh, Paul reviving him. Um, but I actually, that's not actually the point of the story, believe it or not. So we're going to go read through it, and I'm going to point some interesting uh, words in that passage out to you. So turn to Acts 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we, gathered, we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intend, intending to depart on the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. So notice that there's words here. Talk, prolonged speech, talk longer, conversed a long while. So first we see that Paul here is talking to the people of Troas. Then he's prolonging his speech, then he is talking still longer. Then after Paul Eutychus is defenestrated, He is conversing with them a long while. We get the impression from the English here that Paul is delivering a long speech, perhaps talking to them the whole time, only to be interrupted by Eutychus. So he starts off talking to them, keeps talking to us, he falls asleep. He's like, wow, I was interrupted there. And then carries on talking to the rest of the day. Maybe he would have finished at 2 a.m. if Eutychus hadn't been so silly as to fall out the window. But that's not actually what's happening here. It should actually read like this, if you look into the Greek. First, Paul was entering into a back-and-forth discussion with the group. This is, the Greek is dialogos, dialoguing, back-and-forth, dia, two, two parties. That's the first bit. Then he shares the word with them until midnight. So this is more of a teaching He's giving them an exposition of the word. Then they entered into further back and forth discussion, another dialogos there, um, probably about what he just shared with them from Scripture. And then he brought it all home with a conclusion and an application of the whole night's study and discussion. Because the Greek there is homileo, a homily. 
So what we can assume from that Greek, if you set the picture, is at the beginning of the evening, there's a discussion, some questions, Q&A. Then Paul, like, well, let's really dig into those from Scripture. Let me teach from Scripture about the things we're talking about and asking. Then uh, there's some more questions and answers. And then finally, Paul, in his apostolic authority, wraps it all up. And says, well, this is what we've decided tonight, and here's how to apply it. So, um, so Paul sharing his interpretation in the, in the house church of Troas, uh, we see that there's a model for allowing questions, for discussion, for explanation, for learning, and a conclusion with an application. Um, so, uh, we see, again, Scripture being interpreted and taught in community, via discussion, not just a one-way lecture here. We also see um, another example of this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. He appeals to the Corinthian church and says, uh, I wish that all of you would agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I ask you, how can we be, how can we find unity of judgment without first dialoguing through our interpretations of Scripture? That's essentially what's happening. Well, what, what, do you, what do you think about plurality of elders? Well, I think there should be a single pastor and that uh, he needs to be leading the, the church. Well, I think there should be a number of, oh, well, let's look at what Scripture says. Okay, well, let's, I, this this. Scripture reference, this scripture reference. Isn't that essentially what we should do? It should be a discussion between us of sharing references and in our interpretations to get to that point of unity uh, and, and same judgment. So remember, always remember that we can ask fellow Christians to review our interpretations. Find a trusted friend or an elder to go over your study with you or your wife or your husband. Um... Share with others as an encouragement to them. Or maybe during a small group Bible study. Gather feedback from them on your conclusions. And be willing to receive constructive criticism. Furthermore, remember that wisdom is a combination of gaining knowledge from the Bible and seeing how it's applied in everyday life. And in and amongst the body of Christ. It doesn't happen overnight. And every time we come back to a passage, and each time we see it lived out, more understanding of it will be revealed uh, by additional study and experience as we go through it, uh, go through Scripture, and see it applied over and over again. <clears throat> so, there's a few tips on how to think about your interpretations. Moving on. I want to give you uh, an insight into um, some ways that you can identify what you've come across in your study, in your conclusion. How much weight should you give it? I think we tend to, as humans, think, well, we've done all this work and we've come to a conclusion it must be really excellent and brilliant because I'm excellent and brilliant and, you know, just I know what I'm talking about. And very often we don't have that category to say, well, what if I just got the wrong end of the stick, you know? So, 
just be aware that not all interpretations are going to come to clear conclusions. It is acceptable to come to an interpretation that you're not entirely sure about. Um, but you must be sure that you present it that way. Okay, I, I read scripture and this is what I thought it meant. You know, what do you guys think? Uh, below are some categories when we go through uh, which you can place the results of your study so you can give them the theological weight that is appropriate. Without guidelines like these, many interpreters have made the mistake of presenting weak interpretations with absolute certainty. Andrew gave us an example. Um, or being unsure about doctrines about which we should be absolutely clear. Both sides of that. So first, there are direct statements from Scripture. There are clear, direct passages that require little or no interpretation. They can be understood and obeyed immediately. Um, ancient Hebrew interpretation recognized this concept and actually gave it a name. It's called the Peshet. Uh, behind the Peshet was the idea that there is a plain meaning of the text from which all other interpretations should flow. Don't get away from what it clearly says and clearly means. Okay, think about this passage, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14. It says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all you do be done with love. Don't really need too much. Inter I mean, there's some interpretation. You might want to look at the words that are in, in the Greek, but this pretty clear instruction from Scripture that we need to do. It can be under, easily understood and directly obeyed. And we can use the passage immediately to exhort fellow Christians with clarity and confidence. You know, be brave, be strong, Justin. All right. Secondly, we can see direct implications of a passage. The Bible often implies truth, a truth very clearly, even if it doesn't direct it, uh, state it directly. Uh, these implications are given high priority, but errors can be made if the wrong implication is drawn out. For example, if you look at maybe Matthew 19, 16, 26, or um, a related passage, Luke 16, 13 to 15, let's read that one because it's shorter. Um, no servant can serve two masters, for it, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So it seems to me that the direct implication of that passage is we should not rely on riches for our security, but instead rely on the Lord God alone. I think in discussion with others, we could probably easily confirm that implication. Uh, it wouldn't be too controversial. Uh, in fact, I can do that right now. Would you agree? Anybody here? Let's do it this way. Would anyone disagree that I could imply that as one of the interpretations from that passage? that we should not rely on riches for our security, but rely on the Lord God alone. Anyone disagree? All right, I've confirmed my dir the direct implication. Okay? I didn't assume it, though, just in case. 
Uh, there's probable implications of, of Scripture. Uh, something's probably true. Um, it doesn't have quite the authority. Um, it's possibly that we get the implication inc- the correct, incorrect here. Uh, think about the parable of the sower. You could imply, it could be implying that there is such a thing as a false conversion. You know, uh, we could study the rest of Scripture, or maybe Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, or some other passages, to s- discover whether my conclusion from Matthew, the parable of the sower, that a false conversion is possible, we could see if that conclusion fits with the whole counsel of God. If there are other passages that maybe support that idea. And then we can, of course, test that in community as well. How about inductive study? Sometimes we come to inductive conclusions. This is uh, an interpretation based on gathered evidence from Scripture. If a large amount of evidence exists, then strong induction has taken place. Strong induction produces a premise that is likely true, but could potentially be proven false with greater evidence presented against it. Um, Solid induction is more likely to be produced with strong, solid interpretive techniques. If there's little or poor evidence, or if the study is poorly equipped, or has studied with an agenda or a false presupposition, then weak induction can take place. You're using the same methods of inductive study, but coming at it from different ways. So just, just be aware that you could actually yourself be a, a person that is performing weak induction on the, test, on the text. Okay? Have that category in your mind. Be willing to be proven wrong in your conclusion. Um, you may come to an inductive conclusion from studying Hebrews 11 that salvation comes by faith and not works, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament too. I mean, you could read that passage and make that by all the time and say, by faith, by faith, by faith. Go through it and say, oh, okay, well, it makes sense to me that that statement would be true. But you'd have to do some additional study to confirm that and discuss that with others. We'd have to study the biblical theology of salvation by faith to confirm or deny the conclusion. Not very controversial, I know, but just as an example. There's also, um, you can have a category for outright speculation. Thinking about something um, Coming to a theological hypothesis. Um, some people can formulate an interpretive conclusion by speculating the Bible could mean something based on very little evidence. They should never be taken as scriptural principle. How about this verse? 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? You could speculate, and this is going to be a bad example of speculation, that the modern church can baptize for the dead. In fact, if you look up this idea, there is actually a practice of the 
Mormon church that a living person acting as proxy for a dead person can be baptized by immersion on behalf of a deceased person as long as they're of the same sex. Um, yeah, and that's based on this passage. Um, and, and it's driven by the fact one must be baptized into the Mormon church in order to be eligible for the resurrection from the dead and enter into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> of course, the problem with this is that the verse has not been read in context, and further study and examination of the grammar and the cultural context will reveal that it was actually done in this passage, was referred to by a group, a sect of Christians who um, did not associate with Orthodox Christians of Paul's day. So... <clears throat> Be careful. I mean, you can make these. You see an example here, obviously, of someone hypothesizing about this verse and standing up, standing up a whole ecclesiological practice around it. So we'll be careful not to do that. Uh, that's proof, proof texting, another way to put that. <clears throat> but what about how we could speculate about use of numbers in the Bible? There are definitely some sort of numerical patterns Maybe these numerical patterns could enhance our understanding of the text. But we have to be careful and use discernment here. Because you go too far down the rabbit hole of finding meaning in numbers. It's called gematria and it can be dodgy, let's just say that. So just just be careful when you're doing that. Um, all right. Where are we? I want to get on to application. So you see in your outline it says the tiered system. This is a reference to what's known as theological triage. Um, and if you want to read more about that, um, Albert Moeller has, I think, a book about theological triage, essentially saying that as we talk about our interpretations of Scripture with others within the church, there are three tiers of how we can look at them, the first tier being uh, things that are fundamental truths of the Christian faith that we should all agree on. There are second-order doctrines that we may disagree on but still maintain that somebody is a Christian, maybe perhaps not be in the same fellowship with them. And then the third order are doctrines that we can disagree on and still remain within the same body of Christ with those folks. So if you want to learn more about that, please... Uh, second order doctrines. Yeah, it's things that you can disagree with a Christian and still affirm their salvation, Perhaps, but perhaps the disagreement is significant enough where you wouldn't want to fellowship with them in the same... Yeah, that's second order. No, the first order is salvific issues. Yeah, yeah. Third order is something like maybe whether you're pre-millennial or amillennial, etc., etc., Jolly good. Thank you. It's available in essay form too. Right, so now on to application. So application is critical. We may think that if we observe and interpret the biblical text well, that we've studied well. And that's maybe true. But unless we apply it 
uh, imply what we see in Scripture to our lives, our interpretations can end up null and void. A great verse to remind us of the value of application is found in James 1, 25 It says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But I guess that most of us don't spend time studying our Bible with the express purpose of not applying it to our lives. So there must be something going on. We're not going in there and like, ah, right, I'm not going to apply that. But somehow we miss it. So let's ask ourselves some questions. What keeps us from applying Scripture? Or maybe applying it well. Or on the other side, what leads to us applying it incorrectly? So one reason may be not understanding it well. We don't understand Scripture well, so we can't apply it well. Or hopefully these lessons have aided us um, toward solving that. Um, Maybe we don't have enough time to think hard about how our study connects with our life. Maybe we're too tired, too distracted, uh, not diligent, as Paul says. This is why I suggested actually setting aside some time to study, to think through the application Say, I, I don't know how good you all are at time management, but say you've set aside an hour to study the Bible, like I might do. And make sure you've like 45 minutes for the study and then 15 minutes to really pray through and think through the application tacked on the end of that. Maybe write down in your, your Bible, study, Bible study journal, how should this apply to me? And then answer that question. Not just, hey, this is my interpretation. Another reason we might not apply it is unwillingness to consider sin in our own lives. Often we see the Bible's job as affirming what we already believe, rather as something that changes us. We're also typically arrogant enough to see how what we're studying corrects other people's sin and not our own. I know, I do that all the time. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, this would be a good passage for this person to hear. Wait till I see them next. Yeah, I do that. <clears throat> Maybe we only ever apply Scripture individually rather than doing it with someone, someone who may see our lives and see it from an external perspective. And I get that feedback. So, we, you know, this sort of assumes that we share our interpretations in community by living it out, in a sense. Like, they see something change in our life based on something we've studied. And, uh, and then we're sort of that interpretation uh, with legs, as it were. And they see a change. Um, as a, you know, instead of just applying that individually. Also, we're not very introspective or honest about ourselves, so we have a hard time seeing what we're really like. So there's lots of other, questions, uh, other reasons why we don't apply it. We're reticent to apply. <clears throat> I'm sure you can think of more. All right. So in the last piece here in application is questions for application. 
best ways to help us know how to apply our study is to ask ourselves some questions for application. I'm going to go through a few questions that you can ask yourself as you study a passage in the Bible to help it apply to your life. Question number one, does it point out sin in my life? How about this first? Do everything without grumbling and complaining. Ouch. <laughs> That's one of the most easy application verses that is out there because you need to remind her about that about six times a day. <clears throat> um, what assumptions does Pasha have that I don't share? How is my own situation similar or different from those being addressed in the passage? How does this passage challenge or confirm my understanding? Hopefully you're looking to be challenged and to grow. You're not like we said before, just, oh yeah, that's, I've always believed that. I mean, there's a certain amount of confirmation that happens, but also look to be changed and to add to your knowledge and wisdom of the word. Is there a command to obey in the passage? Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Straight up command. Is there any encouragement in this text? Scripture is often the only true source of encouragement. Is there a promise for me? Perhaps a better way to ask this question is, how does this passage lead you to trust God and his promises in Jesus? Does it teach me something about God? Does it describe or illustrate an attribute of God that drives me to worship and adoration and praise? Does it teach me something about myself? I will say if you have the Holy Spirit, yes, it will. And you do have the Holy Spirit if you are a child of God. What evidence for my faith does it give me? It's a good one. What will I do differently today because of this text? How does this passage call on me to change the way I live? Another question, how can I model, share, teach this truth to encourage others? Be intentional about sharing what you've learned. And How could my family or church apply this text? Another good one to ask. I'm sure there are many other different questions we could ask in application, but here's some good ones to start with. Uh, the main point of this section, though, is that we must not let our studies become dry knowledge. We must let the Holy Spirit begin his work in us of heart change through the living and active word of God. All right. Don't forget to apply. One last thing here you'll see at the very bottom is homework. <laughs> Michael's leaving as I go to the homework section. <laughs> So if you're up to the challenge um, and looking for a motivation to put into practice what we've learned in this series, I've got some homework for you. Homework is compare Matthew 8, 1 to 3 with Romans 10, 9 to 10 and answer this question. Together, how do these passages describe and illustrate salvation? And if you're truly interested in the homework, go ahead and do that. Set so sometime to do it and email your results back to me and share your, your interpretation. The question is, how together, how do these passages describe and illustrate salvation? And use all the tips that we've covered 
to help you with your conclusion. Okay, well, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you you've not left us in the cold and without knowing who you are and what your plan is. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that is inerrant. We thank you that it is sufficient. Lord, may we treat it with the serious sincerity that it deserves. And may you give us the self-discipline and the diligence to study your word as we go out. Lord, we thank you for the the study that uh, Brad has put into the sermon today. And may we listen with attentive ears and look to apply what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen.